Welcome to this week's Investors Chronicle Personal Finance Podcast. I'm Lenora Walters and joining me today are Emma Ajimang, Personal Finance Writer and Special Guest Alan Steele, Chairman of Alan Steele Asset Management. With the UK referendum on whether to remain in the European Union looming and concerns on global growth, investors are understandably nervous and have been pouring money into what they perceive to be more cautious areas. Over the last three months, targeted absolute return funds have been particularly popular as these aim to deliver positive returns in all market conditions. However, despite the fact that these funds are grouped into one sector, it's actually a very mixed bag, making the task of choosing one even harder. Emma, you've been looking at this. So first of all, how do these funds try to deliver positive returns in all conditions? Um, Well, Leonora, absolute return funds try to use strategies and methods most traditionally associated with hedge funds to try and, as you say, make money for investors in all markets. And um, unlike sort of typical funds, the aim is not to beat performance of a benchmark or index. It's more about ensuring that you receive cash back. You know, investors are sort of aims to get that for investors, whatever the conditions. So they would tend to use a variety of investment techniques like short selling, leveraging and trading futures, options and other derivatives. Um, so there's actually lots of different strategies out there and different funds will use a variety of these options um, in greater or a lesser d- degree. OK, um, now can you talk through the um, details of some of the, um, let's say, most popular strategies that um, absolute ref- return funds use? Yeah, sure. Um, so, I mean, we looked at three main strategies that some of these funds tend to use. So you've got long short strategies and these allow funds to go long on the market or buy shares in the market or short the market um, by effectively selling shares in the market. And the main advantage of this is that funds can make money in falling markets um, because short, short selling allows you to profit when stock prices fall. So that's obviously different to your typical fund which can mostly only go long only. Um, another kind of strategy that it's tended to be used a lot is global macro funds. And these are funds where the managers take a big picture view of um, the world economy or various markets. And they try to use different investment options to match their convictions on what's going to happen in, in those markets. So, for example, they might use long short positions in equities or fixed income or currencies to profit from their belief that, say, for example, um, US equities would do well but healthcare as a sector won't. So they might go long US equities and short healthcare in that instance. And another sort of main strategy that's used a lot is what's called market neutral strategies. And these try to reduce the exposure to market fluctuation by making sure that the value of the amount that the fund is investing in and short in positions is equal to the value that they are putting into long positions to reduce the risk um, of markets fluctuations and so what these funds will tend to do is hold stocks with equal weight in in them and bet that one stock will do less well than another so for example um, a fund might hold be long bmw and short volkswagen and the idea is if their positioning is right and bmw does better than volkswagen they will make money but even if BMW um, doesn't do as well as they thought, but if Volkswagen falls further than BMW, they will still make money. Okay, I mean, that sounds all really good, but right, nothing's 100%, is it? So um, what's the downside to these strategies? Yes, you're right, Leonora. Um, So, you know, despite the fact that these funds have the 
um, name absolute return in their title. Obviously, there's no guarantee that they will be able to deliver positive returns for investors. And that's one of the main reasons that the investment associations changed the name from absolute return funds to targeted absolute return funds. Um, so, yes, some of the risks include um, the fact that, you know, there's no guarantee that these funds can make you money. But also, with the, all these different options that these um, absolute funds had, tend to have, it means they've got more um, possibilities for things going wrong. So, for example, short selling, um, if you make the wrong call, for example, Volkswagen does better than BMW, you're actually going to lose out on both sides of the equation because um, your positioning on both aspects is wrong. And that means that you're going to lose money if on, on both sides of that trade. And that means that losses, yeah, exactly, yeah. losses will be mm. mounted up very quickly. Um, and uncompounded. So that's a big issue to watch out for. As is volatility, some of these funds can be quite volatile because of all these strategies that they will use. Mm, okay. Um, now, I suppose, all right, that, that's not so good. But um, I think the point is with any fund sector, there's always funds that won't do well and funds that do do well. Um, and the aim is for investors to choose the ones that do well. So what are some examples of absolute return funds which have de- delivered on their aims? Yes, um, we looked at some of these in the, in the article this week. So, for example, we've got City Financial Absolute Equity Fund, which is users long short strategy and has achieved equity like returns. So, um, you know, it's actually you know delivered. 103% cumulative return over five years, which is very impressive for any kind mm. of fund, um, how much more an absolute return fund. Um, we also had a look at Henderson UK Absolute Return Fund and Fred Needle UK Absolute Alpha Fund. These are also both long, short strategy um, funds and have been performed well over the last five years. Yeah, and I'll, I'll throw in the fact that Henderson UK Absolute Return, that's one of our IC Top 100 funds You're as well. You're right, mm-hmm. yep. it is. Um, and we've also got Standard Life Investments Global Absolute Return Strategies, which takes a different tack. It's um, more of a multi-asset global macro fund and it invests in, in all di- different kinds of things. And it's actually been a um, very popular fund with investors. It's got it's, you know, a very big fund, mm. about £26 yeah. billion pounds mm. under assets. So, um, yes, those are some of the funds that we looked at, but there are also more options in this week's article. Okay. Now, Alan, um, what's your view on absolute return funds? And do you think they're a good option at the moment with all the uncertainties and possible volatility? Uh, you're not going to like this. Um, I don't like them. Uh, we've never used them. Um, we don't intend to use them. Uh, we think they're much ado about nothing. Um, I think you have to be inordinately talented to get longs and shots right. And I don't see much evidence of that in the last 15 years. I've been doing this for 40 odd years and I like to keep it simple. Um, we don't like gas, for example. The standardized gas people came to see us some time ago. They couldn't explain what they were doing. It was all very complicated. And, and my experience tells me when things are very complicated, uh, keep away. It's actually down 3.8% in the last 12 months. Uh, and in three years, as all the money's poured into it, it's up 6.4%. That's appalling. And yet it's attracted huge amounts of money, especially from uh, defined benefit schemes. The FCA seem to be quite happy with this. Uh, we wouldn't be. Uh, we prefer things that are simple. So I'm afraid um, 
we're not a fan and uh, if it was jukebox jury I'd be voting at a okay uh, can, can you explain a, a bit more about you know what it is that you don't like and you know what you see as the, the, the risks because of it obviously there are like you say um, a lot of risks and uncertainties to these funds yeah. well you just have to look at the hedge fund industry in the US I mean, and, and there were one or two there are one or two very very good managers and they are very much in the minority um, and even these managers have actually been giving up and, and p- passing the money back to the clients as interest rates are very, very low. And as interest rates are really, really low and are expected to remain low for a long time, that takes away a bit of the edge that they can play on hedging and so on. Um, so, you know, I, t- I like to look at things that are fairly simple. Um, if you take one of the most talented managers in, in that area of being pessimistic or trying to hedge out risks and so on, is Sebastian Lyon. I think everybody would accept that. Sebastian doesn't believe in shorting. Um, he believes in, in long and just playing uh, his pessimism in the right areas. And, and if you look at Trojan, which is um, the main fund he runs, I guess, I mean, it's up 8.5 in the last 12 months, um, playing what, what a lot of people who are attracted towards absolute return funds, I think they should look to be attracted to people like Sebastian. Okay, um, and he runs Personal Assets Trust as well, correct. doesn't he? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. He, he's taken over from the uh, hyper pessimistic Ian Rushbrook. Mm, about um, six, seven years ago now, isn't it? Yeah, Ian mm. died. Mm. Um, I, I knew Ian. Um, very, very pessimistic. And so, if you are pessimistic and you're looking to try and be cautious with the investment, then I would rather you pick something like Personal Assets or Trojan. Uh, than than uh, than absolute return funds. So I don't think uh, I think you have to be inordinately talented to get that kind of strategy right. And and uh, as yet, I haven't met anybody. Okay. Um. You mentioned obviously um a couple of funds. Are there any kind of other portfolio strategies or other funds that investors can use to smooth volatility, um, without having to use absolute return funds? Yeah. Well, there's an obvious answer there, isn't there? I mean. Um, and I can never understand why more people don't just buy buy these kind of funds and stick with them. And I'm talking about equity income funds. I know they're really boring. I've, I've been following them for a long, long time. Uh, the, early, the early ones were the M&G ones, like extra yield and, and income and stuff like that. And then, of course, there was uh, perpetual income that became Invesco perpetual income under Woodford and so on. To be, to be honest, we believe that these are the kind of funds that people should should have. We, we work on a basis. It's, um, I don't know if you guys are football fans, even though that the, Euro, the Euros are, are coming along. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, we've, we've, we realised some years ago, probably about 15 years ago, that what we were really doing was we were not IFAs, we were fantasy fund managers. And we, had management, we were running a management team. Of, of fund managers and our goalkeepers would include people like Sebastian Lyon or David Jane, who's now at Mighton. Um, you know, we kind of look at it as where's the defence, and then we mm. would have equity income guys in at the back, like Woodford would be a centre half, and Carl Stick would be there if you get the drift. Okay, uh, Carl Stick being the manager of Rathbone Income Fund and Neil Woodford now running CF yeah. Woodford. Um, yeah. UK equity income, just for some of our readers who might not know um, what these managers do. Yeah, I'm sorry about that. It's yeah. okay. Yeah. But that, that's how we kind of, we look at things. Francis Brook at, at Troy as well as a good income manager. Trojan income, yeah. James Harris, who's uh, in garden leave and, and heading towards Troy from Newton. Mm. 
been long-term fans of him. He's very good defensive, and that's the kind of thing we think people should do. And and if you are, if people are prepared to follow Buffett, Buffett doesn't believe in hedge funds. He doesn't believe in chasing. He believes in buying the highest quality defense, good value, and sticking with it. And that and that's what we've done with our clients for many many years. And as a result, we don't get too many phone calls worried about well, whether it's in or out, it's Brexit or Remain. Um, we just just kind of got on with it. I've um, I've been doing this for 43 years, and I've seen it, I've seen at least 10 ends of the world. Um, and uh, as it was, it Mark Twain. Mark Twain that said that uh, as he's an old man, and in his life he had seen many many worries, none of which actually happened. Um, so. That's the kind of thing we like to do. We like to find high-quality manager who has passion of what he does, spends preparation, hard work, learns from failures, and then and has that strategy. And we like to have these are the kind of people we prefer to gas or absolute return. Okay, so um, alternative options could be to look at some defensive um, UK equity income funds. Yeah, or yeah. Global. Or global equity. Okay. Would would of any particular global equity income funds that you'd you'd suggest to people? Well, we um, it's interesting that the man that James Harris, who we're a big fan mm. of, and who's who's obviously now about to join Troy. Um, the fund, even with him not there, has done Newton well. Global it's, Income. The global yeah. Income Fund. It's, I think it's run by Nick Ray. Who's Nick Clay. Yeah, yeah. He's been running the same sort of strategy, and so that's what still worth looking at. Artemis Global Income, we like. Um, it's a it's an excellent fund and Invesco Perpetual um, Global High Income Fund. You know these are the kind of funds that are pretty good. So um, th- that's enough. You don't need too many. You just end up kind of watering it all down. Yeah. Okay. Some some really useful suggestions there. Thanks for that. Um, talking of too many funds, that takes me on to our next subject this week's portfolio clinic. Uh, now this features a young reader who's looking to build up um, savings to fund significant life costs when he retires. He holds a mixture of funds and hopes to generate a return of eight percent a year. Um, it's also worth mentioning he has quite a lot of funds. Now, Alan, you, you were one of the experts who reviewed this portfolio. First of all, do you think an 8% a year return is realistic in current market conditions? Well, it depends how long the, you're taking to look at, at it. As in terms of if you're looking at over the next 12 months, that might be a bit difficult. Um, mm. If you're looking at on a rolling five-year period, what does history tell us? You know, I don't think it's particularly um, onerous. Um, taking a three to five year view and if you are exposed towards a growth kind of um, equity income bias if you know what I mean rather than bonds you're not going to get bonds in anywhere uh, anybody who has any any bonds is, is looking at guaranteed losses going forward uh, you just can't see how why that would work so it depends what they're going to do it's, it's obviously I would rather he was looking at something like sex <laughs> Because then, when you produce eight, you, he thinks you're a genius. Um, but it's not—it's not out of the box. No, it's not out of the box. Okay, if he, you know, kind of sort of analysed over the long term, yeah. I suppose over over shorter periods. I mean, are there any kind of market conditions where possibly you could make eight percent a year? Yeah, obviously. I mean, the interesting thing is we are now. If you if you think about it, the, the current bull market started on the sixth of March two thousand and nine. 
Uh, this is 2016, unless I'm mistaken. So we've we've been in a bull phase more or less for seven years, albeit that the last 12, 18 months has been, for trackers, has not been particularly clever, uh, although there have been one or two managers mm. who have done rather well. Um, so we are in a... Um, we are in a long-running bull, and, and and so over the next two years, there's a fair chance that we're going to get a pullback. Um, and so I think anybody who's actually looking to produce, say, well, I'm I'm really looking at eight percent a year. Um, he made the comment that uh, if I can't get that, I may as well be in a tracker. Well, <laughs> that would be a nightmare. Uh, yeah, because if, if he's if he if he would stop and have a look at the trackers in the last 5, 10, 15, 20 years that don't look too clever. Um, so I think he has to be bold um, and take time. And I, I think it, it could be done, but the, we will have a pullback. There's no doubt we're going to have a pullback. We just don't know when and we don't know how much. My suspicion is it might be much milder than people expect because when everybody expects a pullback, you don't get it. It's when you don't expect it, you get the big 20% hits. Okay. Uh, and I don't see that yeah. coming. No. Yeah, I think it's fair to say anyway, if you're going to hold assets like equities, then you shouldn't be investing for less than five years, should you? Um, no, but you know, theory and practice is, is two different things. So you can get somebody, you can, we could sit down with somebody and say, now, um, would you, do you think you could take a 20% pullback from time to time, you know, given the volatility and so on? And they will say, um, well, they'll either say yes or no, but let's assume they say yes. Oh, yes, 20%, I can take that. Well, they can take it in theory. But you know when it happens in practice? That's a different issue. Because when it's down 20%, they think it might be down 30 or 40% and so on. And then the, the emotional brain takes over. So, you know, whilst it's, it's a difficult thing to be a contrarian and to be patient, Buffett says, why don't you, you should buy... You should buy equities and then basically go to sleep for 10 years. I think that's a great idea. Mm. Now, now this, talking of, of risk and, 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 and time, so, um, Ravida says he has a, a moderate attitude to risk, but um, he's young, he's 29, um, and he's saving up for after he retires. So with this time horizon, yeah. could he or you know other sort of listeners in a similar situation afford to be a bit more adventurous than a, you know, a moderate attitude to risk? Yeah, absolutely. He's 29. Goodness me! When I was twenty-nine, I knew everything, um, and um, now I'm sixty-nine and I know nothing. Um, but yeah, of course, he's, he's, that's what I, I looked at it and thought, he's twenty-nine. Get, you know, go for it. Um, get some really good managers in there. Get some good areas in there. Um, he should. He's an ideal. He's, he was talking about putting six thousand, I think, in, uh, into ISA or something. It's ideal for him to be doing it monthly, isn't it? He, he, I know he's got quite a lot of money already in there, which is amazing. He's got a hundred thousand. It's astonishing. Mm. Um, at twenty nine, that's phenomenal. Yeah, Moose has got debt at twenty nine, <laughs> so um, yeah. I mean, if he's got that in there, and they, and he only gets eight percent per annum, he'll double his money every nine years without adding any more in. So I think he's um, he's if he does the right things. He, he'll he'll do really well, um, but he should be he should be dripping in as well, and he could be using um, managers like um, the, the lads Douglas Brody at um, Bailey Gifford. Yeah, the, the global discovery. Yeah, Bailey Gifford global run discovery. The same strategy, I think, in the Edinburgh Worldwide Trust, looking for tomorrow's winners. But you know, that's the kind of thing you should be. It's high growth. Yeah. So, Go, go for that. Um, and, and I also think that's seriously undervalued for a long, long time are small caps. 
Mm. And I think he should be finding some decent small cap managers like Gervais Williams and and, and going for that. Okay, what 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 are the names of um, Gervais Williams' funds? Say you know perhaps no, some of our listeners might look to it. Is it, he uh, runs Diverse Income Trust. Yeah, Diverse Income Trust, which we cut among our ISTOP 100 funds, but I'm aware he's got quite a few other funds as well. Yeah, I mean, he, he figures runs a microcaps fund. So. Yeah, he runs the Mighton, um, he's got a multi cap, he mm. also runs the Mighton small cap. His, his particular expertise is at the lower end of small caps. Yeah. Seriously under, they're seriously undervalued and, and been out of favour for a while. And you know what it's like, you know, when things have been out of favour for a while and the circumstances begin to change a bit, um, you could, ex- I think they could be the out- the real outperformers in the next five, ten years. And, and it's, to me, it's that kind of thing he should be doing. And he should be culling. He's got too much, mm. too many different um, strategies and yeah, just thinking, just thinking about the strategy now. You know, you got somebody with a long time horizon, and we're going to allocate to um, smaller companies and high growth sort of um, equity areas. What kind of returns could they expect to make? <laughs> okay, I, I, if I said if I said what I was doing in my mind, I would have my compliance department come in. Um, I think you're talking double digits easily. Okay, um, it, uh, going. From here, going forward over the next decade, mm. it wouldn't surprise me. Um, yeah, obviously with a few bumps, quite a few bumps along the way, though. Always. Yeah, yeah. And always. I mean, there's no such thing as a as a straight as an as an easy ride with equities. I mean, you have to you have to take the rough with the smooth, and you have to be prepared to to sit through pullbacks and have the c- courage in a pullback if you have the liquidity, if you've got cash. To buy a bit more. Okay. Now, now you said um, as well um, that um, this reader needs to cull his portfolio, and yeah, so I think it's fair to say he has twenty-eight different investments. Most of them are funds. Um, yeah. How many funds? You know, really, should he pair it back to? I mean, if if you're using funds rather than direct equities to make a portfolio, you know, what's a good number? Well, it depends on the amount of money, obviously. If you've only got four thousand, you're not going to buy fourteen funds, are you? Um, I mean, you're going to buy one or two. Mm. You've got a hundred thousand already. Um, it would strike me that anywhere between five and ten would kind of make sense. Um, there is no science behind that. It's just a gut feel. Um, if he wants to go for, you know, really go for it and take big bets, then he would use about five, wouldn't he? Um, yeah. And mm. I don't see any reason why he shouldn't have mm. somebody like. Um, Sebastian as a goalkeeper, if you, I, mean, I don't mm. know if he needs to go that far back, because he really actually, he, what he should be doing is have a bit more in attack than in defence, if you see what I mean. Yeah. Uh, and in, in the case of the, the 100,000, you know, anywhere between 5 and 10, it's about the quality of the managers and what he fancies. Um, I would certainly have something like the, the kind of global discovery idea, and I'd certainly want to have something like Gervais with the small cap area. Um, these make a lot of sense. Um, Mid caps, you know, kind of thing. And maybe his his base would be um, people like, um, like not necessarily Woodford, but people like that, and or, or um, James Harris. I mean, you know, if he wants to have a bit of an anchor behind him, then I would I would tend to have that. I think that would make a lot of sense. Okay. Now, um, he was a bit concerned about fund charges, but you were saying, um, you know, don't only think of this. So when um, an investor is going about choosing a fund, 
um, you know, what the main things they should consider and how high up the list of priorities should charges be? Uh, I don't. Obviously, you want to make sure that you're not being overcharged for the end result. To me, number one priority is the end result. What What's in it for me? What, what has this manager produced net of cost? Remember that, I, I, see, the sad thing is, you know, I, I, I keep saying this, I've been, a, I've been in a long time. I remember in the 70s when everybody went on about charges and how mutual with profit insurance companies were great value for money because they were cheap and they, they, and you shared in all the excess profits inverted commerce because you were obviously mutual there were societies so you were a member if you remember that it was about about the cheapness and what happened to them though they've all gone equitable life came along it was nice and cheap you remember that they don't share this, they don't pay commission to third parties, it's very cheap and therefore it's better. And and what happened? They went bust. And of course split caps came along and it was cheap and it was as safe as a Volvo. Cheap, when people say it's cheap, it worries me because I, I say, well, what are, you, what, are you, what are you being delivered behind this cheapness? And cheap trackers have been actually a disaster in the UK in the last 15 years and yet people still go on and on about them. Um, you look at the quality of the manager. If a manager's charge, you take Terry Smith, for example. Terry Smith in the Fundsmith Fund is not a cheap fund. Um, I met a man in London at a money show who, who said, yes, I've been watching that fund for the last four years. It's on my watch list. Well, <laughs> I think it's doubled in the last four years from memory after charges. And, I, and he says, yes, but it's the charges. And I said, listen to what you're saying. You're saying... I'm watching it, but I'm put off by the charges. Meanwhile, the man is producing these incredible results, and he's producing them like other successful managers because of what Colin Powell said, the U.S. Secretary of State. He said the secret of success is preparation, hard work, and learning from failure. That costs money. So I do accept that there are people who are charging too much mm. and delivering, but delivering... Nothing. They're not delivering. Mm. They're, they're great big funds run by the Scottish widows and things like that, seven billion. They're producing nothing. Yeah, so, so to, just to sum up really then, I think the key is um, uh, make sure that the you know, you're paying for what you get. You know, Make sure you're getting value for it. Make sure the fund's performing. All right, there are charges, but make sure the fund's performing. Yeah. It's, better to, it's okay to pay for a fund that's really performing well than have something cheap that's losing yeah, your money. Like, yeah. uh, Leon, it's like everything else in life. Mm. You, know, you, get what you, you pay get for what you get. Yeah, you absolutely. Take your time and have a good look and do your preparation. Study the past. Have a look at these people. Work out why it is they're doing so well and be prepared to pay for it. I don't have anybody who's ever complained of the fact that for the last 30 years they've been sitting with, with um, New Woodford. Okay, great. Now, um, just, just finally, this reader, um, he holds his investment in, in an ISA um, yeah. rather than sort of pensions wrapper, which um, I suppose he could do because he's saving up for a long time. So, I mean, do you think he'd be better off in something like a self-invested personal pension, also known as a, a SIP? You know, I mean, when you're 29, you, 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 you think you've got like 100 years before you get to 60. Um, so when you're 20, although I started my pension fund when I was 28, 
uh, that was the first time I put money into pension. Uh, I didn't have any money at that point, although it was a different world then. Um, it's a hard one to answer. I think um, over time, if, if this man is going to get very, very successful, he, he should recognise that the, with pensions freedom, on the assumption that they don't remove it, um, it, it has got inheritance tax benefits, which he won't see at the moment because he's 29. But when you've got, when he gets to 60 and so on, and then realises that that the, the whole fund, depending on how big it is, but the whole fund is exempt from inheritance tax on death, they might take a completely different view of it. And it is going to be, even as a basic rate taxpayer, if he puts money into a pension plan of any description, he gets a 25% uplift. Um, through taxation, and if he's a 40, 40% taxpayer, he gets a 67% uplift uh, because of the way the tax system works. So it's money for nothing, and it's free of capital gains tax and so on. It just looks boring, but they're not as boring as they used to be. And so it's, it's a 50-50 choice. Yeah. I can understand why he would just want to put money in ISIS, um, and that rolls up, and then he can take out whatever he wants to take out. Um, and if he's married at that point, and he leaves the ISA to his, his wife, then she can maintain the tax freedom and so on. Uh, but it will be liable to inheritance tax when he dies. And I think that is something that people need to look at very closely, but not when he's not when you're 29. Um, but anybody who's listening who's 49 or 59, they should be thinking seriously about how they can use pensions as, as a freedom from inheritance tax tool. Okay, that's really useful. Um, thank you, Alan. Now, last week, Alliance Trust hit the headlines because another large investment trust, RIT Capital Partners, made an informal offer to take over Alliance Trust. But just a week later, RIT Capital has pulled out for not given any specific reasons for this. Alan, what do you make of all this and what do you think of Alliance Trust now that it is in effect going it alone again? tried to make inroads into the financial planning industry by having um, a platform and uh, attracting um, business on um, for pensions um, by using the platform. They yeah. are incredibly cheap. Uh, and I often wonder, you know, it's, a, it's, it's like looking at the other side of the coin mm. in terms of charges. When somebody is so cheap, you think, how can they possibly make money out of that? So you would suspect that the service standards must, they must be failing somewhere. Either that, they're losing serious money. But they are a, a big sleeping giant. Um, they haven't got a great record in the last, goodness knows how many. No, years. I know. Um, uh, I, I, I really don't know. We, we, only, um, we only use Alliance Trust for very large pension funds because they are so cheap it isn't true. Mm. Uh, with their platform, and of, uh, and of course we can, we're not buying their, their trust, we're, we're buying other things. Right. Yeah. Because we don't, we don't think they're very good. So I don't, I don't understand. What I didn't understand was why RIT would actually even go to them in the first place because it didn't look like a kind of um, relationship that would go anywhere. Mm. Thinking about people of Alliance Trust shares, do you think we should persevere of Alliance Trust or because it's got an unclear future and you know hasn't performed very well, perhaps should they um, look at other global growth funds? Um, uh, well, it depends on the tax consequences. Um, if, they, if they own, if you're saying if they, if they have Alliance Trust, um, investment trust shares, you mean? 
That's what you mean. It's yeah, yeah. I'm thinking about people, you know, people shareholders in, in Alliance Trust. You know, it's a global growth fund. So, you know, should they, you know, kind of hang out and see if it really does get better, or perhaps should they think about investing in other global growth funds? Well, given given that they've been satisfied with such rubbish returns for so long, um, I'm surprised that there's any left. But if they are still holding them, then you would imagine that things can only get better because somebody is going to go along there and take them out. Surely, some, somebody's, it's got, it's got to happen. Maybe you play it um, safe and do 50-50, hold on to 50% and move 50%. Okay. Um, I'm mean, thinking about, say, so you did move 50% into other global growth funds. Um, What would be some examples of global growth funds that you do like? Well, well kind of ones we've been talking about. Yeah. Um, uh, you know, the, the, the team at uh, Bailey Gifford, um, whether it's the... Worldwide Discovery, yeah. yeah. You know that kind of thing. Mm. Um, I, I, you know, that's the sort of thing I would be looking at. Um, Artemis, the guys at Artemis. Oh, is Artemis Global Income? Do you have in yeah. mind? Yeah. yeah. Well, it's, you'd think it would be. Um, you'd say, well, that's not a growth fund. But one of the things you've got to remember is this: if you look over time, and it's mm. worthwhile actually checking this, if you look back over the last 20, 30, 40, 50 years, you find that up to seventy-five percent of total returns come from reinvested dividends. Yeah. And indeed, in some surveys in the States, they found that um, the, lower, the lower the PEs, um, so if you're looking at value, if you want, they outperform growth significantly. So maybe growth is over an overrated concept. Okay, so you could buy perhaps um, a global equity income fund and yeah. reinvest the dividends. Absolutely. Okay, great. That's some really interesting suggestions. Thank you, Alan. That brings us to the end of this week's podcast, so it just remains to thank Alan Steele, Chairman of Alan Steele Asset Management, and Emma Ajimang, Personal Finance Writer at Investors Chronicle. You can read more about Absolute Return Funds, Saving for Long-Term Goals, and Alliance Trust and Rich Capital Partners in this week's issue of Investors Chronicle and the website. Thank you for listening. <laughs>